Welcome back to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Roy Zimmerhansel, a 40-year veteran of the banking and securities markets. Roy specializes in securities finance, a vital activity in the wholesale markets. Securities finance involves lending shares or bonds against collateral, borrowing shares or bonds against collateral, or taking out secured loans. It's an important part of Elon Musk's current faltering bid for Twitter, for example. Roy is now practice lead at Peerpoint, a UK-based consultancy firm. He was previously head of global securities lending at HSBC. Roy has also been vice chair of the International Securities Lending Association, a member of the Bank of England Securities Lending and Repo Committee, and he has acted as an expert witness in a number of securities finance legal cases in the USA and the UK. I hope you'll find the discussion that follows as interesting as I did. Roy gives an insider's perspective on some of the most dramatic market events of the last 40 years, including the 1987 crash, the 1995 Barings Bank collapse, the 1997 Asian crisis, the 98 Russia default, and the 2008 financial crisis. You can support the New Money Review podcast using Patreon. To do so, click on the link in the right margin of our homepage, newmoneyreview.com. Any contribution you can make will help me grow the podcast and manage the running costs of the site. And if you enjoy this podcast, please like it and share it with your friends and colleagues. Roy, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners a bit about yourself and your area of work? Uh, yeah, thanks very much for having me, Paul. I guess, uh, let's see, I've been uh, I've been around the markets now. Uh, this is, uh, next week will be my 42nd anniversary in the markets. Uh, which is uh, which I find shocking because it seems like yesterday. So my background is I started at the depository in Canada in the early uh, 1980s, then moved into uh, banking into sort of a, a series of different custody roles, uh, all in Canada. Then in uh, I'm in 1987, the market had been expanding. The global investment market had been expanding pretty dramatically, and there was a real sort of bull market. And one of the Canadian banks, CIBC, decided they were really going to put a new footprint down into the UK as a as their global center for becoming much more of a player in the in the global custody market. So I relocated from Canada into the UK uh, just in time for the crash in 1987, uh, but have been here ever since. Uh, again, working in custody roles until 1992 when I moved into securities lending and prime brokerage and securities finance generally full-time. So that's been since uh, 1992, and I've done that at uh, banks. Uh, I've set up uh, proprietary trading platforms, um, and uh, I'm now running my second consulting firm again. So so really it's been in securities markets as there's been a dramatic growth in in assets and sort of watching the ebbs and flows. Great. Well, it's a great pleasure to have you on the podcast because I, I must say to listeners that since I started as a, when I started as a journalist in 2008, uh, I started writing about ETFs, exchange-traded funds, and soon realized that there were some things going on behind the scenes in ETFs that I didn't really understand. And Roy was my Guru, I think, is the right right word for uh, securities lending, repo, and all these strange things that uh, investment banks do behind the scenes that keep the keep the markets flowing. So, um, I, I, during the next half hour, I'd like to ask you to to share a bit of your experience about you know this important part of the 
of the financial markets, um, which uh, I mean, term, I've looked up a definition of repo before the podcast and or the repurchase agreement uh, market, which is called an obscure but important part of the financial system. Uh, and I guess the same is true for securities lending, which is a very similar operation. Uh, and just to put things in, in a bit of context, I, I looked up on the ICMA website that the global re- repo market is about $15 trillion and the securities lending market, maybe another two or three trillion, which compared to the, glo- the global money in circulation of about 40 trillion is quite a significant sum. So, um, you know, wh- why is repo and securities lending an obscure but also very important part of the financial system? Well, look, that's a great question, and everyone uh, has been asking that since I kind of went from a bigger world in custody, where we're looking after that sort of that larger pool of money into what many consider a more narrow field of securities finance. But look, the reality is, to me, the reason it's important is because it underlies so much of the activity that actually goes on day by day. I, I when I used to run uh, courses in person. I would I would often in my introductory courses challenge people to bring in these free newspapers that you get by tube stations and subways and and try to relate every story in these mainstream uh, uh, newspapers in, from the financial sections there into securities finance because repo and securities lending are really a critical part of everything. So let me give you some examples. Uh, number one, if someone has a uh, an insurance policy, uh, or a pension fund with their company, or if they've ever bought a mutual fund or a USIT or an ETF, the odds are that they're already making money from securities lending and don't even know it. On the flip side, if you look at government financing, if they could, if they could only um, sell bonds to investors that had to hold them until the end, well, that would be, you know, a pretty risky. Uh, situation and they demand higher interest rates. So the ability for people to not only trade in secondary markets, but finance those securities while they're still holding the economic interest to them. Well, that's that's what makes governments really interested in supporting repo markets because it helps lower their cost of financing in the secondary markets because banks and investors that buy it can borrow and lend money against these, these assets as collateral. So it's critical to governments and then securities lending is really all about trying to optimize returns from portfolio holdings that investors would hold anyway. It's kind of generating incremental rental value, kind of like if you own a house as an investment rather than something to live in it, and someone comes along and wants to rent that from you while you still own it, go ahead, give me the extra money because this is a long-term investment of mine. So, so it really underlies so much of the activity that we read about, that we hear about, uh, and it's obscure because, well, I guess a little bit we like it that way, a little bit um, it has had some, like any product or any activity or any transaction, it can be used effectively, it can also be abused. So let's, um, you know, it's obviously a huge area and and a very important market that is not always very well understood by outsiders, if at all. Perhaps a good way to look at um, how the market has evolved and whether, whether you, know, you know, to understand its important aspects is to look at where things have gone wrong in the past and, and you know, where the market has had to change its practices, where we ran into liquidity crisis or near crisis from as a result, as a result of what was going on in repo and securities lending. Let, let's start with uh, an episode that 
happened early on in your career in, in, in 1982 um, when a couple of dealers in US government securities got into trouble as a result of repo operations. Could you tell us a bit about what happened there and why it was important? Yeah, I mean, uh, look, the reality is whenever there are securities to be had, people will take positions in those, sometimes being supportive, thinking the asset prices will rise, sometimes thinking that they'll drop. Uh, and, you know, repo and securities lending transactions were used to support, you know, investment trading there and, and sort of <clears throat> that kind of arbitrage opportunity. And, and there was one particular firm, Drysdale Securities, which had a very strong view on the likely outcome of a, a move of interest rates, uh, and they bet large on it. This now, was when U.S. interest rates were nearly 20% and, you know, almost unimaginable uh, from present day, but that's that's where they were then. Well, those yeah, so those were interesting times. It'll be interesting to see how how inflation goes now. But yeah, absolutely, interest rates were huge. Um, you know, the bet was that uh, that things would uh, would correct. Um, and the way that they they expressed that was they uh, Drysdale would borrow borrow securities in, borrow bonds in, government bonds, sell those into the market, take the proceeds, sell them on, and just kind of uh, turn this over again and again and again, building up their positions. Right. Now, the reality is um, they ran out of money, um, the, they went into default, and what really when, what, what was uncovered here, and, and by the way, that was sort of two weeks before their bet would have come right, uh, it al- always works out that way, um, but the reality here is it was a huge mechanism. So all these borrowed bonds... There was, you know, when you lend or borrow securities, typically you take collateral as a protection against your counterparty going into default. But but because there had never been a large-scale default, what no one really took into account was the fact that bonds every day and between interest payments, the accrued interest that attaches to that bond increases. And so while the principal value of the bond was collateralized and regularly marked to market and and collateral topped up or given back appropriately. What they hadn't realized is that they weren't taking into account the accrued interest. So when uh, Drysdale defaulted and couldn't return the bonds that they borrowed, all of those bondholders uh, effectively were out the money or their service providers. And there's, there's always lots of litigation around these sorts of things. But Effectively, it changed the way bond lending happened because all of a sudden you had to take into account accrued interest quite sensibly. And I think that's a really good example of, you know, the market evolves through experiences often triggered by uh, losses, and then you adapt and and sort of make it better going forward. Now, after the Drysdale um, default happened and it, and it nearly um, the market nearly seized up as a result, there were some changes brought into the U.S. bankruptcy code a couple of years later, which made repo lending more secure from the lender's point of view. Because if if the borrower um, entered bankruptcy, the repo lender from 84 onwards was able to take their securities before the bankruptcy judge could basically put a stay on the on, on the whole assets of the defaulter and, and say, you know, we need to part, portion out things equally amongst Creditors. So, you know, how how significant of, uh, an event was that in the development of the market? Like that, that was fundamental because if you, if if all of a sudden you are concerned about your counterparties and any of your trading activities, as as 
in the event that they get get into trouble on their way to insolvency, if if all of a sudden you have to be concerned that a judge is going to interpret these transactions as not offsetting, right? Because if if you look, a repo really is just a collateralized money loan. So I'm either borrowing money and giving you bonds, or I'm uh, or, or I'm doing it the other way around, right? I I want to actually give you bonds back, and you give me money. So so one side has bonds, one side has cash, and that's a transaction, right? But it has two legs to that transaction because when you open up a, a repo, is short for sale and repurchase, and it's really two legs. And if all of a sudden you are concerned that this isn't going to work out in a default environment and only the first leg opens up and you have no recourse after that, well, you're going to trade less, if at all. And so this is what gave it confidence to say, no, these, this is one transaction. You can offset those two positions and your net loss is, is whatever the difference is or, or your net gain uh, and you have to give it back to uh, the liquidator. So so fundamentally, that's that's part of it. But more importantly, that has become part of really every annual analysis to make certain that that the standard uh, legal agreements that are used in repo and securities lending are effective. You know, what's the treatment of, on insolvency in any of the jurisdictions where counterparties or, or the contract or the securities might lie? So, so fundamental to how the oper- market operates today. Right, but some people have said that that's that the kind of preferential treatment of repo counterparties compared to other secured lenders has then gave the way for the massive expansion of repo market lending, the massive expansion of the derivatives business over the next two decades, really culminating in the in the crisis of two thousand and eight. What would you say to that argument? Well, I w- I would say that of course that helped uh, enable it. Uh, I'm not certain that it fueled it in such a way that uh, it caused the problems, right? You know, crises happen for a number of different reasons. Again, a securities lending transaction, a repo transaction, any kind of these structured transactions are just transactions. It's about how they're constructed, how they're risk managed, and how they're actually enforced in markets. So, you know, I I wouldn't say that it was a cause of it, but certainly the size of the markets, um, uh, had an impact and and the interconnectedness I think is the other big issue uh, that we've seen over that that same sort of 40 year period is is used to have a series of domestic countries domestic yeah. markets linked by global investors now really everything is interlinked right so Drysdale uh, you know, as you explained earlier was a case of someone taking a, 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 a bet on interest rates that was too big for them and they were they were too early, they got it right. They would have been right eventually, but they 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 couldn't finance themselves. Let's let's you know move forward to the mid nineties and um, and the Barings Bank collapse of early nineteen ninety five. You know what was your experience of that episode from a repo and securities lending market perspective? Well, from a personal point of view, uh, or from the, a personal point of view, yeah. Well, again, from a personal point, I was working at I was working at a, a Japanese investment bank, and I wouldn't sign up uh, bearings as a counterparty to trade with uh, because in my view they were uh, there wasn't enough information about them and they were just too small so although I was obviously working for a Japanese bank and they were very big all across Asia including Japan uh, and had a lot of interest it just didn't make sense to me from a risk perspective 
it was just something I didn't have any any sort of insight. I didn't know what was actually going on behind the scenes about the shady practices and the nine 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 account and and uh, sort of this is Nick Leeson's secret trading accounts that he put all his losses into and hid. Yeah, correct. Hidden hidden losses uh, and you know really the failure of the management to challenge a trader. Uh, one of one of the side uh, aspects of that, though, one of the reasons he was able to manipulate uh, the firm so well was that he had worked in the back office and the front office and knew the gaps and sort of the flows and the procedure and was able to manipulate that. Look again, that has had a lasting impact today. You know, if people within an investment bank are trying to move someone from the back office into the front office, or in my case, in my last bank, trying to move someone from the front office into the bank office, back office, yeah, it is it is incredibly difficult to do that. And uh, despite the value that that bringing the two bits of knowledge together would have, you know, so again, a lasting impact. But getting back to the to the bearing story, uh, then what happened is uh, my firm hired a team away from bearings to trade convertible bonds in Hong Kong. And of course, they needed to borrow securities as part of their trading strategies. Uh, and one of their big counterparties they were selling to was Bearings. And they said, you have to lend Bearings uh, the stock for, on, on a particular new issue. And I said, no, actually, I don't have to do anything. Uh, we got into an argument. I said, look, if you want to uh, do that, then you sign this piece of paper that says, if there's any downside to Bearings loss, um, you'll bear it, so to speak. Um, and they did. So we lent them the stock. Uh, sure enough, a couple of months later, uh, Bearings had a near miss. Now, again, Bearings didn't actually default because they were rescued by ING Bank. Um, so there wasn't actually any, any, any losses to counterparties that I'm aware of uh, directly. Uh, but the interesting thing there and the lesson that we learned then, which I think has been forgotten until Archegos is that what we did, because we now had an exposure, and even though we were able to pass it on to uh, another department, uh, my boss and I spoke on on the Sunday when all the rumors had hit the papers and everything, and he went into the office Sunday night to, to put in the sell orders on the collateral that we that we were holding because we had Asian collateral. We were first in the market to sell those assets and we, you know, we got good prices before the market started to implode. Now, the reality is our lawyers were telling us we couldn't do that. We couldn't use the collateral. And we said, well, look, well, I'll tell you what, we'll sell the collateral. And if we have to buy it back, then we'll do that. That is what happened. Uh, we did have to buy it back, but of course, by then the prices had dropped and it was cheaper for us to buy the collateral back. So we protected the bank um, and uh, and took took action immediately at the top of the list. Now, if you look at Archegos and some of the feedback from the many failings that, that have been revealed, the reality is uh, people didn't act quickly enough to dispose of the collateral. So the, all of the lessons that we learn from every one of these experiences, I think, play out again at some point in the future. And I also think that they go across asset classes as well and activities. So, yeah, so bearing yes. didn't end up being a problem, uh, but only because A, they got bailed out and B, we took swift action. So I guess, Roy, the, um, one of the, apart from being able to react quickly, another conclusion to be drawn from the bearings event was 
choice of counterparty is important, even though you're, you know, you have collateral to offset your risk. Yeah, and that's that's really a fundamental uh, sequence as well. You see, having collateral, having good collateral, doesn't turn a bad counterparty into a good counterparty. Your your strongest choice, your most important choice, is always your counterparty on who you're going to be dealing with, because. The reality is if in uh, 2008, uh, you were dealing with Lehman Brothers and taking gold bars delivered to your house, that sounds pretty safe uh, and certainly would be safer than if you were dealing with Goldman Sachs and taking paper clips. But the reality is, uh, which situation do you end up better off in, right? So counterparty selection is really critical, and that's and and look, I've dealt with Lehman through all my career, so so that's you know, but but I think I think there are points. You know, I had a similar example uh, when I was at uh, at Nomura, and I was dealing with uh, Yamaichi, and it seemed clear to me that they were on the pathway to going out of business. And so I called up my counterparty at Yamaichi and said, look, I'm going to have to recall all of the stock I've lent to you, right? I, I don't need it today or tomorrow, but I, I need to unwind. He, he said, yeah, look, uh, no surprise. Um, I have heard that before from other people, so no problem. Of course, it went up his chain. It went up my chain. Tokyo called uh, my management who's, and, and, and said, you know, it we don't want to contribute to their downfall. Uh, but my management fortunately stood up for me and they said, well, look, we aren't going to tell Roy who to do business with. If he doesn't want to trade with them, he doesn't have to trade with them. And so everything unwound uh, very quickly. And a couple of months later, Yamichi indeed was out of business. Um, but I spoke with uh, one of my competitors and they said, uh, and I said, well, you know, I just, I just had this experience. And he said, you know, th- I want to thank you because it turned out really well for me because every time one of you guys cuts them off, they're even more desperate and they came to us to replace those assets. And look, I charge higher fees and I charge higher collateral margins because I know that when they do go out of business, which they will, I'm going to be sitting on top of a pile of collateral and I'm going to have made a ton of extra fees. So the question is, who's right? And and you can debate about that. Look, it worked out well for him. It worked out well for us because we weren't part of that mess. We weren't distracted. We you know we didn't have any risk of loss. He made a lot of money, paid a lot of lawyers, <laughs> and had to give a lot of excess collateral back. So so there is no right one one right way of looking at it. But counterparty is critical to everything you do in every asset class where there's an exposure. Your counterparty is always your first stop. Okay. Let's move forward a few years to um, 1997 and 1998. Uh, that was the period of the Asian and Russian crises. Uh, and I guess if we look at, think about Russia in particular, that was a case of the market really getting it wrong and thinking that a, a sovereign would not default in its own currency because it could print it as much as it liked, but it did. And Russia did default both on its foreign currency debt and its domestic currency debt. And it also devalued the ruble. A lot of the Asian markets also had heavy devaluations and had stock market collapses. That was a pretty wild time, as I remember. Uh, what were your recollections from a repo and sec lending perspective? 
Well, again, it was it was a huge uh, expansionary period beforehand, right? So Russia had done incredibly well. The Russian equity market, you know, a, a former colleague of mine had set up a Russian hedge fund. You know, the year that uh, that they were the best performing market in 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 the world. Uh, but as you see often with these markets, you know, following the the year where they're the best, they can often be uh, amongst the uh, worst performing. So, so that's how life went. But look, there was a huge rush to Asia and more trading activity, and China starting to be more uh, more important economically and feeding through to the other Asian countries, and that was really what was fueling their growth. And they had huge uh, foreign cash inflows, and that drove up their markets. It drove up their currencies. And then the real question became, you know, is this, was it the right time for a lot of currency depegging and a lot of um, deregulation, uh, which, you know, many have blamed for, for that? Well, look, the upshot of it is, you know, a good example and a microcosm, which, which again plays out today, is Malaysia had gone from an environment where short selling was punishable by public flogging. Uh, up until 1996. Then they opened up the regime, allowed short selling and therefore securities lending to support that short selling activity, opened up the market. Then all of a sudden the currencies uh, started getting attacked directly, right, by foreign exchange traders and then through bond trading. And then there was the allegation that equity traders were short selling uh, Malaysian stocks in order to generate ringgit cash which they could then legitimately sell for foreign currency. So again, an indirect way of attacking the currency, which the government was trying to stop. So the government stopped short selling and securities lending, you know, less than, less than two years after having opened it up again. Look, the, 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 that stopped foreign investors really from trading in the market. Now, the interesting thing is if you had your securities on loan, well, look, that's just a book entry position. That's a contract between you and your counterparty. So those assets aren't stuck. Any unloaned assets, normal assets in custody, well, they're stuck waiting for the government to uh, unfreeze assets. Uh, but even then, if you want to sell those assets in the market while well, you're in the queue with everybody else, you then have a pile of ringgit, which you're going to have to sell, again, at possibly depressed prices as the, the currency fell. Yet, if you had securities on loan, well, now you just needed to go to your counterparty who was almost 100% going to be non-Malaysian, so two non-resident entities dealing with each other, agreeing a closing price because the foreigner wouldn't want to get their stock back and the borrower wouldn't want to be buying that stock again. So you could just offset the two, come to a price, close out the positions, no purchases, no sales. And everyone, all of a sudden, the, the lender now has not their stock back, but they've closed out their position. It's actually more efficient than getting the stock back and selling it, getting currency and converting that. And the borrower has locked in, no doubt, profits from the short positions there, and everything's good. So, so in many ways, I think that securities lending can be an unexpected risk mitigant at times of closed markets. And the same thing should have applied during the recent shut of the Russian stock market again. And we've talked about it when they had uh, in Thailand a few years ago, 
when the emperor uh, died and there was questions about sort of uh, whether it be martial law, whether markets would be closed, what the impact would be. Well, fortunately, we were outsized lenders in Thailand and we reassured the customers saying, actually, you're much better off to have your assets on loan rather than in custody. So, so, so these lessons, I think, really kind of permeate and can be repeated, although not, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. Yeah. But in general terms, the, the, the introduction of bans on short selling, which we've seen repeated in many markets since Malaysia did it in 1997, have they, have they had any positive effect or have they just worked to drain liquidity from the markets? I mean, have they had the effect that the people who introduced the bans wanted? Right. Well, uh, as, as you might imagine, this is sort of a, a pet topic of mine. Uh, I, w- I will tell you the feedback from someone who was uh, in Malaysia at the time, who was part of the decision to shut short selling at that time in in ninety seven, um, and his comment was that foreigners lost so much confidence in the market. It took the market 10 years to recover because they'd opened it up, welcomed by foreigners, shut it down, foreigners just stayed away from the market. So I, so I think in that one individual's view, it was a mistake. If you look at the uh, subsequent short selling bans, and they happen periodically, but on, on a wide scale basis, of course, it was after um, the, the global financial crisis where at one stage, you know, 30 different countries had had short selling bans for different periods of time. Uh, the reality is that, uh, again, to quote uh, uh, Christopher Cox, who was uh, head of the SEC over that period, uh, very famously said afterwards that putting the short selling ban in place was the biggest mistake of his career. Because what, what you end up doing is you artificially shut down markets. That That impacts not only liquidity, but again, investor confidence in those markets. I'll stay away rather than participate because I can't predict what's going to happen in that market and whether there'll be other interventions again. Um, It's quite telling, I think, that if you again look at the COVID-related short-selling bans, if we had 30 after the GFC and then we had kind of eight after during during and and, and after the the initial COVID uh, lockdowns, uh, I think that's that speaks volumes. You know, countries thinking that it didn't really achieve what they wanted it to do. And and again, I'll just give you one example. Again, a a, a story that uh, I had in two thousand and eight, where um, when you had the short selling ban on uh, on UK stocks, well, uh, in the run up as the markets were crashing in in two throughout two thousand and eight before the Lehman default. The big story was short sellers manipulating the market, driving the market down. Uh, My argument was, well, short sellers aren't the only ones selling. Everybody's selling. And the argument from one of the journalists that interviewed me said, well, the the other people I'm talking to, the investment managers, will say that uh, assets are being driven down below their fair value. Then the short selling ban came in. I called up the journalist and said, uh, so I guess if assets were below their fair value and there's a short selling ban, this must be the buying opportunity of a lifetime. Why don't you ask them? And they said, yeah, not buying stuff isn't really a story, right? So it's yeah. that, kind of, that kind of bias that, that I yeah. think is that we see and we see it you know, time and again. 
the, the activity uh, in GameStop, again, calls for short-selling bans. I think GameStop is the perfect example that there is enough information in the marketplace today for retail investors to assess market c- conditions and take views on that, which in their case were successful in many cases, right? There's lots of people made lots of money. So, so again, short selling being the bad guy, I think is kind of misleading. Right. Uh, you mentioned 2008, Roy, and it, I guess in some people's minds, that was the, the high point of the, of the repo market. Uh, it's, it's not, uh, you know, I think reached the same levels since, uh, and that was because the 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 financial crisis of 2008 exposed some some faults really in the system, and there were probably repos being extended on too many unsafe uh, underlying instruments. You know, is what is that your your view of things, and and how have you seen things evolve since then? Well, again, I I think there's many contributing factors. So so part of it was, uh, you know, people taking views and positions. Look. I, I've talked, I've banged on about this counterparty issue, right? Uh, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is the quality of the asset that you're financing. Remember, if I'm a money lender side of the repo transaction and I'm financing rubbish assets, uh, well, look, that can also go wrong, right? And I think we saw plenty of that. So again, you know, the product itself is just is just a tool that you use to exercise your view. And people get views wrong, and they made bad judgments on on many risky assets and leveraging up assets and uh, and accessing assets, right? So, so if you look at the, a lot of the activity in asset backed securities, you could say, "Oh, what a terrible story." Well, as as an asset class overall, if you look at you know, the U.S. and you look at Europe, it wasn't really all that bad. Where there's some concentrated, you know, piles of of rubbish, absolutely. And those are the things that got called out in law. So, so I think it, it's it's a mistake just to generalize and say these activities were done. But look, incorrect activities or inappropriate activities or uh, you know, unethical activities. You look at some of the repo one hundred and five financing where they were they were repoing transactions um, to keep them under a certain structure, which allowed them to keep them off balance sheet. The, these are the sorts of practices that that I think you try to get best practice, and you try to have some uh, some continuity and some uh, some professionalism in there. And yeah, of course, it exposes all of those things. I think some of those activities are always going on in the markets, but it's a whole thing that as long as markets are going along nicely, no one really notices. And so, yeah. so I think that's part of it. The other reasons why we haven't hit the peaks. Um, Number one, after the crisis, uh, I think uh, banking regulations changed, which meant that much of the the, the flow repo activity uh, was no longer economic for banks to do. And so again, the legacy of that 10, 20 years later is that banks only will uh, finance customer businesses now often. And so what it's actually done is it made it harder for many counterparties to get repo financing because it's just not in the bank's interest to use their repo lines under under the current constraints. On the securities lending side, um, you, you had proprietary trading effectively knocked out the door. People talk about proprietary trading being banned. It hasn't really been banned. It's just really super expensive from a capital point of view. So it's ineconomic for banks to do. And so banks, you know, in the 90s, hedge funds were doing a lot of trading strategies and the banks figured out, well, we can do the same thing. And people don't often realize that banks 
work with much larger leverage organizationally than hedge funds do. Yeah. And so if hedge funds can squeak out a good return with their leverage, well, we as banks, we can do bigger trades for thinner margins at higher leverage and making more money. So that business disappeared, right? Completely disappeared. And of course, many would say that's a good thing. Uh, and, and that proprietary trading was a cause of the crisis. Again, in the UK example, I think that's not really correct. The banks that were bailed out, um, you know, Bank of Scotland or Halifax Bank of Scotland, uh, Virgin Money, RBS, none of those were particularly big proprietary traders, if at all. And so it kind of misled the reality of the market and banks, I think, did a really poor job of selling their story there. Yeah. The impact of that is that liquidity in secondary markets, if you look at market making activity for corporate bonds, if you look at market making activity in equities, it's much less interesting and has been left to the likes of the citadels of the world to focus on that. So it's shifted the market. And I think many times where we've had market dislocations, we get big gaps down because those liquidity providers aren't really as engaged in the market as they used to be because they can't take the positions and make the money. And so you're left with opportunistic liquidity providers often who are waiting for big gaps down and then say, yeah, now I'll step in. So it's, it's again, shaped the market, not in the way that I think regulators entirely thought it would. Yeah. So the nature of trading has changed completely You know that from, from that bank-driven market of the 80s and 90s when you could call up Salomon Brothers or Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan, trade your 100 million in bonds or half a billion and get a good price. Now it's all, it's become more fragmented and more dependent on high frequency traders that use computer algorithms rather than those traders willing to put their own balance sheet on the line. Correct. And and you will have had this experience yourself, right? You know, in, in the corporate bond market, uh, number one, banks have dramatically stepped away from the inventory they used to carry on balance sheet to support corporate bonds. But at the same time, because of interest rates over the last uh, 10, 15 years, uh, every company that could borrow money has borrowed money. So the supply of issues has gone up and the, the liquidity provided by banks has gone down. And so you probably have a four or five fold difference in liquidity in the markets. Yeah. Um, many, many interesting topics that we could expand on you know, for much longer, Roy. Thank you very much for taking the time to chat. But before we go, I'd like to ask you know, to come to the present day. So this kind of chaotic world environment we're finding ourselves in, the Russia-Ukraine war, these sanctions that seem to be being applied differently by different countries in a kind of chaotic way. Um, market liquidity perhaps under some some strains again you know what 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 do you you know let me say me ask not just to be negative about this you know what do you see is the most worrying thing currently but what's you know what do you also think it sees the biggest opportunity from where we are well the the reality is you know I've, I've over the last 40 years we've talked about only some of the crises that we faced and we've come through them all and you know, a little bit battered, a little bit bruised, but the, the lessons that we learn all the way along help shape where we are. I, I'm not particularly concerned about any of the secured finance markets at all because the uh, you know it, it would be wrong to say we've learned every lesson that we're ever going to learn. But I think we have a pretty robust system. I think uh, 
some of the regulatory changes, much as I don't like interference from regulators, I think some of them have been very positive. Uh, something like the liquidity coverage ratio, which requires banks to be able to finance themselves for 30 days with closed financing markets, so kind of be self-funding for their, I think that's a really powerful change in thinking and adds quite a lot of stability to the markets. Um, secured finance and the and the and the agreements and documentation that support them, I think, you know, they're they're really robust. I think people are uh, maybe too discerning about counterparties, so it's hard to be a new entrant into the market sometimes. Um, but you know, would you rather have it too hard or too easy? Um, so so I'm 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 pretty bullish. My 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 view is that it's all about peaks and troughs, and all all the securities finance markets do is try to moderate the peaks, right? So they don't really go as high into the irrational exuberance period, but they also they also smooth the bottom. So it's not quite as deep and not as not as stark. And so that's really the role. It shouldn't have a, a, a leading role, anything. It should be, as I said, part of the plumbing, make it a little bit sort of safer, more secure and more liquid. Right. So, the, so from your perspective, the, you know, the plumbing part of the financial system is is much improved from where we were before the financial crisis, yeah. Look, it, it uh, sometimes kicking and screaming, but it uh, we do uh, we do tend to get better. And and look, I think uh, SFTR, the security, securities finance transaction uh, reporting regulation, uh, I think you know, irrespective of of whether European regulators themselves get value out of it, I can guarantee you that every firm that's been captured by that knows much more about their business, much more about their risks and profile. And that's a that's a much stronger position to be in than we've ever been in before. Yeah. Roy, thank you very much for your time. It's been a fascinating chat. Uh, really enjoyed speaking to you. Right. Thank you very much. And, uh, and uh, best of luck going forward. <laughs> you too. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support our work, you can do so via Patreon. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website. Finally, please join us soon for our next episode.